This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Psalm 103, starting in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the assurance of your presence with us. That you're always there, guiding us, moving us, forming us, shaping us, molding us into people who live in love like you do. We thank you for the space this morning. Would you do something in us and with us? We love you. We gather in and for your name. Amen. You can have a seat. It's good for us to step into moments like this together. And to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, what brings us here, the story of a God who loved the world so much that he won't leave it alone. In moments where we step into confession together, whether it's through word or prayer or song, reconnect us to that story. Remind us that in a real sense, at a real practical level, that we are flawed, imperfect, broken people who need God to do something on our behalf that we can't quite seem to be able to do ourselves. And that God loved the world so much that he stepped into human history wrapped in skin and bone in the person of Jesus to change everything. To bring wholeness and healing, to bring restoration and reconciliation, to bring forgiveness and freedom to the world that did and still does need it so badly. And see, in confession, we're not just reminding ourselves of the fact that we need that in our own lives. But we're reminding ourselves that this is who God is. And this is what God does. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks in our time together. God's mission, God's work in the world, his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, demonstrated through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And how, as followers of Jesus, we've been invited into that same Work And we're working our way down towards what that starts to look like for us to live out as individuals and together as a church body. And this is the last week of the series. Okay, that was your cue for audible groan or sigh. Maybe some light corporate lament. Let's try that again. This is the last week of the series. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I know. Uh, and we're talking about the role of the church in God's mission in the world. And we put it last on purpose. See, there's this sort of building block thing that we've been doing, but for a really good reason. See, the role of the church is supposed to be shaped by God's mission in the world, which is defined in the life of Jesus. It's essential to why the church 
exists to celebrate, to remember, to worship in response to God's mission and to call and equip and empower and release and send into that same mission. So we have to start with mission before we get to church. And we've got to start with Jesus in order to understand that mission. And so we've been trying to build off of this really intentional order. Jesus and what he said and did in the world and letting that fill out how we see God's mission in the world and letting that be what we're called to as we follow Jesus into his mission and then letting all of that shape the church. Here's why. Because it's really easy to let the way that we do church become an idol. That's a strong statement, I know. But think about it for a moment. It's easy to let the way that we do church become something that we conform into our own image. Something to suit our own preferences or our own personal convictions or our own comfort level instead of letting those be defined in the life of Jesus and the call to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's a strong statement to sit with. And as it's bounced around inside of me this week, it reminded me of a story. And we had some friends a few years back who called us with an SOS distress message on a Saturday afternoon. Now, this was a clear emergency. Uh, they'd purchased an Ikea bunk bed for their oldest son, and they were having a hard time putting it together. <laughs> now, on a spiritual gifts inventory, assembling Ikea furniture tops the charts for me. Uh, if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, or if you've read the book when the runner Eric Liddell says, when I run, I feel God's presence, uh, just give me an Allen wrench and a bunch of those little wooden dowel thingies. <laughs> and it's like the same thing for me. We show up and we walk into the room and it looked mostly right, but there were some major panels that weren't lining up and a bunch of parts that hadn't been used yet. And I said, friend, name redacted for privacy and confidentiality, friend, where's the instructions? And guess where they were? They were in the box, untouched. And my friend thought he could just build it from memory based on what intuition felt right in the moment. And I think the metaphor holds for the church. That we can actually wind up building something backwards and wrong side out if we lose sight of the fact that what we do together is supposed to be formed in response to and in preparation for God's work in the world. As we see it through the life of Jesus. And so I want to just frame some ideas on the role of the church in God's mission in three areas. The people, purpose, and practice. Now that's three things. They all start with the same letter, and they all have the same number of syllables in terms of stereotypical pastor moves. I am crushing it today. <laughs> And if that's too much for you, beware. There may also be some light rhyming ahead. You have been warned. As we get started today, would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the gift of laughter. We thank you for the gift of joy. We thank you for the beauty that you've created in the world and what you've called us to be a part of. Would you form us in your image? We do this for you. Amen. All right, let's start with people. And this is really more of an identity piece. 
for the church to fulfill its role in the mission of God. We have to live from the conviction that the church is not a place, it's a people. And we'll look at Ephesians 2 in just a bit. But in that passage, Paul writes about this new temple, this new dwelling place for God's spirit on earth. And it's going to be a people and not a physical place like the temple in Jerusalem had been for so long. He says this in Ephesians 2 verse 22. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. It's not a temple anymore. It's a people. The church is not a place. It's a people. And when the church becomes a place, when it becomes synonymous with a physical space, it can become more like an institution. When it was intended to be a movement of people who have had a life-altering encounter with Jesus who want to see the world transformed back into the way it was created to be. And institutions and movements view their mission, view their why we are doing this differently. See, movement is defined and catalyzed by its mission. It is the essential component. Movements can't exist without a mission. People don't march down city streets carrying signs that say, it's Tuesday, just want you to know. So mission is vital to the life of a movement and mission or the why we're doing this in an institution is still important, but it's so easily replaced by something that can become more urgent, which is making sure that institution stays around. See, it's easy for the mission of an institution, no matter what might be written at the bottom of the stationary and fancy cursive, to become the preservation of that institution. And when that happens, it comes at the expense of the original mission. And that can happen in the church when it becomes a place, an institution to be preserved and not a people, not a movement. And so it's important that we remind ourselves that the church is not the concrete and the glass and the wood that surrounds us, but that we are the church. Say it with me. We are the church. See, the church is not a place, it's a people. And the church has a purpose that's the same as its peoples, to proclaim and embody the kingdom of heaven on earth, that Jesus is the king that the world has longed for, that Jesus has a kingdom that's not like the rest of the way the world seems to operate, a kingdom that is good news to the poor, that brings freedom to the oppressed, where the greatest is a servant of all, and where people love and pray for their enemies. See, and it's our call as individuals to proclaim and embody that kingdom wherever and however the Spirit leads us. And the role of the church is to do the same. And there's so many ways that this can look. And I certainly don't want to be restrictive. But Paul writes about a unique way that the church can show the world what God's kingdom is like in Ephesians chapter 2 that I want to spend just a little bit of time with this morning. 
So the backdrop of the book of Ephesians is a church stuck in the conflict of who's in and who's not. What does it take to be welcome? To be a part of God's kingdom. So the good news that Jesus is the king had spread outside the walls of just the Jewish people. And so folks from other ethnic and religious backgrounds were coming to faith in Jesus and coming to worship together. And some folks from the Jewish background thought everyone else should essentially have to become Jewish in order to become a follower of Jesus, both by following the Jewish law and for the men engaging in some sensitive cosmetic alteration, getting circumcised as a grown-up, which of course was causing quite a bit of conflict. That's the way the world works so often, isn't it? When groups of people are together in-group, out-group, in-group sets norms that if you don't meet, you don't belong, which is just mean. And then it creates an anger counter-reaction towards that in-group, which then reinforces to them why their norms are so important in the first place, and around and around we go. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. This is one of my favorite passages, starting in verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. See, the church is in a unique position to proclaim and embody the power of the good news that Jesus is king to unify, reconcile, and restore across massive differences. And the early church had some unique situations to try to sort that out. Oppressed and oppressor, slave and master, worshiping in the same room sharing the communion meal together. And it created real problems that Paul wrote to address because it was unprecedented. But what a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And sometimes I'm bummed we have so many options now. It's getting easier and easier to self-select into church communities where this kind of work doesn't have to happen as much. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. See, a profound gift that the church can offer the world, the way the church is uniquely positioned to proclaim and embody Jesus' kingdom is to be a picture of the power of the gospel to reconcile, to restore, to tear down the dividing walls of hostility, to be one new humanity, to be reconciled to each other by the cross. And the church fills its role in God's mission in the world when it's a people and not a place. The church's purpose in God's mission is to proclaim and embody God's kingdom on on earth. And because the church is a community, it has a unique opportunity to show the world what Paul is writing about here in Ephesians 2. Which brings us to the third P, practice. When we think of God's mission in the world, what practices are important for us as a church to orient our time around? 
If we could do one thing, what would it be? And what would be the outcome that we would be hoping for? And we've talked a lot about the interconnectedness between participating in God's mission in the world and giving ourselves to the work of the Spirit in our own lives to form us into people who live and love like Jesus did, that participating in God's mission in the world is supposed to flow out of that transformed inner reality. And last week we looked at Acts 1, when Jesus commissions his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But first he tells them to wait. Literally, don't go. Wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come to them. See, he's getting at something that's so foundational, that's so important, but in a way that I don't really understand can become rote, can become familiar to the point of losing urgency around it. And so right now we pray in Jesus' name against a familiarity that would cause us to lose sight of this priority, that mission is a spirit-led and spirit-empowered thing. And that all of life is supposed to be by the way. And see, it seems like we're wired to compartmentalize something that was never meant to be contained. But in every action, every moment, wherever we go, whether it's on the other side of the world or in line at Trader Joe's, or in the moments of tension where we want to do something, where we want God to do something, but God is saying, no, not yet. Wait, we can walk in step with God's Spirit, empowered by the strength of God's Spirit. And I know this series is on God's mission in the world, but the more time that we've spent in it, the more we get back, or the more we work towards what it actually starts to look like to live out, the more clear it becomes that this is the necessary starting place. A life of deep connection with God that leads to a transformed heart and a soul foundation to be able to live and be in the world in the way that Jesus would. It's the Spirit's work in us that equips us for participating in God's redemptive mission. And it's the Spirit that leads us into those spaces. And so if we could do one thing, if there was one desired outcome, it'd be cultivating a deep sense of connection to what the Spirit is doing. We can't do this without it. And we're doing some programmatic things to try to help with this. Uh, prayer retreats and some really uh, intentional changes in our small group material and meeting flow. Uh, but there's a practice I want to actually give the rest of our time to today. And that's praying together. The secret fourth P. And I'm sure there's a fancier way of saying it. But for the church to fulfill its role in God's mission, it's got to be built on prayer. It just has to. It's the spirit that forms us into people who live and love like Jesus did. It's the spirit that leads us in where to go. It's the spirit that gives us the strength and wisdom and grace to do what God is calling us to do, that sustains us when that gets hard. It's the work of the spirit that opens closed eyes and ears, that softens hearts that are hardened, that makes way for the redemption, the restoration, the healing, the justice, the forgiveness, and the freedom of Jesus' kingdom. See, the church has to be built 
on prayer. Otherwise, we're just building an Ikea bunk bed while the instructions are in the box. Jake's graciously going to play quietly for a bit while we pray. And we'll use a format that we experimented with a few weeks ago. Uh, I'll introduce a topic or a theme and then leave some space for us to pray together. And you're more than welcome to pray quietly to yourself. Uh, But if you're up for trying something new, uh, I'd encourage you to just pray out loud. It doesn't have to be broadcast to the whole room, although if that's how you're feeling led, that's wonderful. So there's something beautiful about the sound of a room filled with a bunch of different prayers happening at the same time. It's something we can't recreate on our own, which reminds us that we don't do this on our own. So as Jake plays, I'd invite you to close your eyes, take a minute, take a deep breath, and let's pray together. God, we praise you for who you are. You have done great things. You are faithful. You're constant. We praise you for what you've done and for what you continue to do. We turn our hearts and our minds to you now in gratitude, offering praise to you. God, we pray for each other in this moment. We lift up the people in the pews around us this morning, those unable to be here. We advocate and we intercede on their behalf. God, we lift up those that are a part of this church to you this morning.
God, we pray for your church gathered around the world this morning. That we would be known by love. That we demonstrate to the world the power of the gospel to tear down dividing walls of hostility and to be reconciled to each other through the cross. We pray for your church around the world this morning. God, we pray for Mountain View High School. We pray for the teachers and students impacted by the student taking their life this week. We pray for the friends and family members who are grieving loss. Pray for teachers and administrators and counselors trying to help kids pick up the pieces. We pray that your kingdom of hope and healing and restoration would come against the despair that can so easily creep in. We lift up Mountain View High School and we open ourselves up to how your spirit might be forming a response in us, how we can proclaim and embody the hope of your coming kingdom.
God, we pray for your justice to come in the world. We pray that you'd strengthen those advocating for folks who can't advocate for themselves. We pray that it would be your justice that comes and not retribution and not revenge. But your justice that heals and restores. And so we lift up this morning those in the world longing for your justice and those working so hard to bring it about on their behalf. We lift them up to you. God, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are at work in us and in our church and in the world around us. That you love the world so much that you won't leave it alone. As we turn our eyes now to the communion table, as we remember and celebrate your work on the cross, that makes the way for forgiveness of sin, that makes the way for reconciliation, restoration, justice, healing, wholeness, hope, freedom. God, we pray that our lives and our church would be formed in that same image of sacrificial love. We thank you for what you've done for us. We pray these things in and for your name. Amen. We'll celebrate communion together now. In the cup and in the bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And in coming to take communion together, we're reminded that we do this as a community, that we don't do this alone, that all are welcome at Jesus' table.